Good morning, New Mercy. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Lisa. I'm one of the pastors here. I wanted to say Happy Father's Day to all our New Mercy dads. I hope you enjoy a time to celebrate with your loved ones today. But I also wanted to say we walk with you to those who are like me, who might have lost their dads, whether it's been a long time ago or recently. I pray today could be a time to remember some good memories of your father. I hope it's a time to share stories with your family and loved ones. Or for some of us, today is a painful day because of lost potential or maybe a strained relationship with your father. And I wanted to say we stand with you also in prayer for healing and hope for restoration. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story called The Capital of the World. In this story, Hemingway told the story of a father and his teenage son. The son had sinned against his father, and in his shame, he ran away from home. The father searched all over Spain for him, but he couldn't find him. Finally, in the city of Madrid, in a last desperate attempt to find his son, the father placed an ad in the daily newspaper. The ad said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. The father prayed that maybe the boy would see the ad and maybe, just maybe, he would come to the Hotel Montana. On Tuesday, the father in Hemingway's story arrived at Hotel Montana and he couldn't believe his eyes. The squadron of police officers had been called out to keep order among the 800 young boys named Paco who had come to meet his father in front of the Hotel Montana. 800 boys named Paco read the ad in the newspaper and hoped it was for them. 800 Pacos came to receive the forgiveness they most desperately needed. Malachi 4.6 says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God, our Heavenly Father, wants us to be healed and restored with our earthly fathers. Today might not be the day to reconcile, but today could be the day you start praying for hearts to be softened. Or today could be a day where you start praying, hey, maybe I can be a father figure to someone or an older brother, to someone who might not have a father. So I say to everyone, Happy Father's Day. Let's pray as I begin my sermon. We thank you so much, Lord, because you say you are a father to the fatherless. Will you continue to help us today on Father's Day to remember that you are a father that loves us infinitely more than even an earthly father can. But we also pray especially for our dads that God today would be the day where God, you convict their hearts and you continually give them wisdom and discernment on how to be a father to their children. We also ask for our congregation, for our hearts to be turned towards our parents so that we can love them and bless them and honor them today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us 
as we look into your word, that you would reveal more of your truth, kingdom truth to us today. We thank you so much for all you're doing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I'm continuing the sermon series on Philippians, Finding Joy Where You Are. Two weeks ago, Pastor 1J talked about persevering because God always finishes what he starts. And then last week, Pastor John focused on the verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the importance of rejoicing, especially during hard and difficult circumstances. Today, I'm going to be talking about talking from Philippians 2 about an obedience that shines and how it's only through our obedience to God the Father that we can find joy where we are. Just as the passage was read today, let me read one more time, verses 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Anytime a passage starts with the word, therefore, we have to look at the passage right before. Let me summarize what came in the early part of chapter two. It's actually a well-known passage where Paul is talking about the humility of Christ. Even though Jesus was equal to God, he humbled himself to become human, and he was so obedient that he went to die on the cross because that was his father's will for him. Then because of that obedience, God exalted him to the highest place. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The key idea that comes to mind as Paul begins verse 12 with the word, therefore, dear friends, the key idea that should come to mind is humility. The humility it took to be obedient to death on the cross. Think about it. What does it take to have that kind of obedience? First, we have to learn to recognize the Lord's voice correctly. We have to learn, the Bible says, the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice. It takes intimacy that only comes with spending time with God to recognize his voice. Take, for example, if I want to visit David Kim's house, I look in my contacts, I scroll through my contacts, and I find David Kim and I text him. I'm like, hey man, I want to drop something off at your house. What's your wife's favorite ice cream flavor? And so he texts me back and he says, it's coffee Oreo. I'm just saying that flavor because it's actually my favorite. I get to David and Yenna's house. They live in Allendale and I drop it off. They go, thanks, but we're actually lactose intolerant and very sensitive to caffeine. We can't eat this. And I'm like, what? What's going on? I look at my contacts again 
And I see that I've accidentally texted Elder Hyunsuk David Kim instead of David Kim, the eye specialist. Because let's be honest, how many David Kims do we have on our contact list, right? But if I had known them intimately, I would have known right away that, hey, Yena doesn't even drink coffee. In fact, when Mother's Group met at her house for the first time a couple years back, she didn't even really know how to work the coffee machine. Alarm bells would have gone on, gone off on my head being like, David, are you sure that's her favorite coffee flavor? Unless he was lying to me and telling me that's his favorite flavor because he wanted it himself, I would have recognized that something was off, right? And so in the same way, with intimacy, we learn to recognize the shepherd's voice. What use is it if we're obedient, if we're hearing the wrong thing? Think about it. When, if we want to be obedient and we want to be sincerely obedient, we need to be obedient to the right thing. The next thing that's required for total obedience is absolute trust. Every circumstance around Jesus was rebelling. Jesus needed to go to the cross, but he did nothing to deserve that death. His physical body was even sweating blood as he prayed, Father, take this cup from me. But because he recognized his father's voice and had absolute trust in him, no matter what the circumstance dictated, Jesus obeyed. Brothers and sisters, there'll be moments in your life when God will ask you to do the uncomfortable thing, the hard thing that doesn't make any sense, something that really costs you your time, your energy, your money, your pride. It will be your choice to obey. If we have absolute trust in the Lord, that obedience will be a no-brainer. I will know that God has an absolute plan for me and to obey shows the Lord that I love and trust him more than I love and trust myself. Honestly, one of the many times that happened in my life was when we decided to move to New Jersey a little bit over maybe 16, 17 years ago. We were supposed to move to Virginia closer to my family where I'm from. And circumstantially, it made perfect sense to move closer to my family. We had two boys already, and I was pregnant with my third, with Eden. We had secured a full-time position at a church. We had just put in an offer for our townhouse. And of course, I would be near my family so they could help me with my kids. But God had other plans. We moved to New Jersey with no job, no health insurance, no housing. My mother-in-law actually had to secure a, a rental, one-year rental for us without us ever having looked at it. I was pregnant with no insurance, so I couldn't even get a sonogram until about my sixth month, and the doctor yelled at me. We were waiting for the New Jersey family care to process, and so I had to wait and wait. Yet God clearly wanted us to be in New Jersey and not in Virginia. His voice was very clear, and we had to 
obey and trust in. And so the rest is history, right? And that's the kind of obedience that Paul is talking about when he said, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Paul is urging the Philippian church to obey the Lord, especially when Paul is not present with them. An important component of that obedience is working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But doesn't that phrase seem to go against the idea that you've been saved by grace? What do you think it means when it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? First of all, it does not, I repeat, it does not mean you should be afraid as you earn your salvation. Let me say that again. It does not mean you should be afraid as you earn your salvation. How do I know that? Because verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Fear and trembling means in all, while you're in all, while you're reverently working out your salvation. John Wesley sums up this idea by saying, God works, therefore you can work. God works, therefore you must work. Let me say that one more time. God works, therefore you can work. God works, therefore you must work. Paul is talking about sanctification here. Jesus completed the work on the cross. He said, it is finished. If we choose to believe in him, we are saved and we will have eternal life. After that decision for salvation comes, then comes what the Bible calls a sanctification process. Many times Christians mistakenly think because salvation is by grace and that is God's work, then sanctification is also only God's work. No, that's a lie. Because once I'm saved, I can just maybe coast by and expect God to mature me into a mature Christian. No, that's like going to a restaurant and having the chef prepare the food, it comes out and we just sit and stare at it. That's sometimes our attitude about Christian maturity. No, you need to pick up the food, you need to put it in your mouth, and you need to chew it. Sometimes you even have to work and cut up the food yourself, then put it in your mouth and chew it and swallow. And that's how we get our nourishment, right? In the same way, we need, during the sanctification process, to choose daily the things of God instead of the things of the flesh. That is what sanctification is. 
John Orthberg. He's the pastor of a church called Menlo Church on the West Coast. And he has a great illustration for this. He says, he writes this, how do we grow? We grow when God works in us. And we grow when we work out what God is working in us. It is like crossing the ocean. If we set out in a rowboat by ourselves, we'll never cross that ocean. We don't have what it takes. But if we just drift expecting God to blow us across the ocean, that won't work either. Neither trying nor drifting are effective in bringing about spiritual transformation. A better image is the sailboat, which, if it moves at all, it's a gift of the wind. We can't control the wind, but a good sailor discerns where the wind is blowing and adjusts the sails accordingly. God works, and then we work out what God is working within us. And that is sanctification. When we choose to obey, God is working in you through the Holy Spirit to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. John Orthberg writes in his book, The Me I Want to Be, he says, spiritual growth doesn't mean a life of doing what I should do instead of what I want to do. It actually means coming to want to do what I should do. It means coming to want to do what I should do. And isn't that a sign of maturity? Look at children, for example, when they're young, they don't want to eat vegetables. They don't want to clean up after themselves. They don't even want to sleep for that matter. They don't want to sit still or wear weather appropriate clothes, or they don't even want to be potty trained. But as they grow older, all of a sudden they're watching their weight and they only want to eat healthy vegetables. They all of a sudden become attracted to someone and then they're spending hours taking showers and grooming themselves. It means, as Ortberg says, it means coming to want to do what I should do. I tell people all the time when I was younger in junior high, I say that I used to have a potty mouth. It was up until my, usually my, during my junior high, maybe up until 10th grade, Every word, every other word out of my mouth was a curse word. Like, you beep, 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 beep. (laughs) People don't believe me, but it's really true. It wasn't until the Holy Spirit convicted me with this book called Words That Hurt, Words That Heal, that out of the overflow of my heart, our mouth speaks. Our words have an impact. Our words have power. And it's in that area of life I probably changed the most when I became serious about my faith. It was really hard to control my tongue, but the Holy Spirit really convicted me, and he really started healing my heart from a lot of anger that I carried. So naturally, less curse words came out of my mouth. I rarely curse now, um, but I won't lie and say I never think them. But God really, really helped me in this area. And this is one area where he's really been working to sanctify my tongue. 
I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. Imagine yourself in a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt a lot and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting in an extra floor there. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Verse 15 says, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. And that is what an obedience that shines looks like. God coming and renovating our hearts, our lives, because he himself comes to live in our hearts. The more obedient we are, the more we trust God's purpose in our lives, and the more we become a witness to those around us. Let's pray together.